Good morning. I'm Brad DeLong, and this is my morning coffee. Mid-20th century British Tory Prime Minister Harold Macmillan is best known not for anything he did as Prime Minister, but rather for a letter he wrote to Dick Crossman, Director of Psychological Warfare at Armed Forces HQ in the Mediterranean during World War II, in which Macmillan wrote, We British, my dear Crossman, are Greeks in this American empire. You will find the Americans much as the Greeks found the Romans, great big vulgar bustling people more vigorous than we are and also more idle, with more unspoiled virtues, virtues but also more corrupt. We must run AFHQ as the Greeks ran the operations of the Emperor Claudius. I find this in D.R. Thorpe's biography, Supermac, The Life of Harold Macmillan. The source Thorpe gives for the quote is the Sunday Telegraph for February 9th, 1964. Does anybody have a longer description? I can't find it in the biographies, and the library does not seem to have Crossman's backbench diaries, which I think is the most likely fundamental source. It's interesting. It was a very interesting thing to say. Um, and it feeds into you know, say the grand strategy of the British Empire in the 19th and 20th centuries. I mean, think of it. From 1830 to 1900, Britain could outmanufacture any likely coalition of its European enemies. By 1913, that was no longer true. Britain just was just one of several industrial powers capable of projecting a power across the globe. Would the 20th century be a British, a German, a Russian century? The British Empire preferred that it be a British century, but as of 1913, it was not all-powerful. Back up. In 1800, the United States was a newly independent developing country, but it was the near plaything of the superpowers Britain and France. President George Washington could warn others that his Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, was not quite a patriot, would willingly sacrifice the independence of America and freedom in America if by so doing he could advance the cause of freedom in France. By contrast, by 1870, the U.S. was a power. It had an army, a navy, and an industrial base to support them but it was unable to project that power south of Mexico City or east of the Bahamas. Nevertheless, there was a shift of Britain's strategy toward the U.S. starting in the 1840s. Unusually, Britain made a deal with the U.S. over the Oregon Territory, a deal that gave and gives the U.S. what is now Washington State and part of Idaho, which were then majority British settled that American settlement was by and large south of the Columbia River. Settlers from Canada were coming in north. This is unusual. The usual British negotiating strategy would have been to send the gunboats to burn the U.S.'s capital and then to dictate terms. Then there was cultural contact, Rhodes scholarships, dukes marrying the daughters of plutocrats, massive investment from London in U.S. industrial development, 
plus the cultural hope to find a way to bind together the English-speaking countries. Maybe a hope that the U.S. would outsource foreign policy, as far as Europe at least was concerned, to the mother country, or at least have a special relationship. And this policy of conciliation, as Edmund Burke would put it, became more and more important as time passed. By 1913, the U.S. was a potential superpower. By 1939, the U.S. was the superpower. Let's look at the European-descended population of the United States versus the British Empire. European-descended because the United States was not in the business of educating African Americans or making anything like full use of their potential productivity up until, um, well, up until perhaps the 1960s. And Britain was not in the business of fully educating and making potential use of the non-Anglo-Saxon Celtic descended inhabitants of its empire anymore. In 1800, the U.S. had four. The British Empire had 17. Say, you're, you're. In 1840, the U.S. had 13. The British had 28 million. In 1870, the U.S. had 33. Britain had 37 million. And people looked forward to a future, call it of rough parity. Um, yes, U.S. population is growing, but the U.S. east of the Mississippi was pretty thoroughly settled. The U.S. west of the Mississippi was, if not a desert, a place where population density seemed bound to be low, as it was then, as it still is today, with the exception of the Pacific coast, plus a couple of weird hotspots like Tucson, Phoenix, and um, Denver. U.S. had prairies. British Empire had prairies, too. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, potentially South Africa, potentially the highlands of Kenya. And yet, by 1913, the U.S. had 83 million and the British Empire had 59 largely due to the U.S.'s openness to the great wave of European immigration that started in 1870 with the coming of the Ironhold Scoop propellered steamship to carry people across the Atlantic for a month's wages, perhaps, at most. People bypassed Britain, went to the United States, and so the United States became the superpower. From 30% of British manufacturing, of British Empire manufacturing as of 1860, to 60% by 1880, 100% by 1900, 175% by 1913, and 300% by 1929. Yet, in the long run, the British Empire kind of won. That is, Britain was no longer the world's preeminent superpower. But the United States has made, since 1929, the world in which we live a comfortable one for Britain and for its dominions. And in Britain's death struggle with German, say, royalist imperialism and Nazi fascist imperialism in the two great crises of the first half of the 20th century, 
the fact that Britain had conciliated the United States and that there really was a special relationship, that the Romans were not in the business of sacking the cities of the Greeks, but rather of protecting the Greeks against latter-day Persians. Um, Apologies to Iran, which does not really fit in this analogy. That that was a pair of wired aces in the hole in the game of seven-card stud poker that was global politics in the first half of the 20th century. I'm Brad DeLong, and this, this is my morning coffee. Thank you for listening.